0: Welcome to another episode of Tech Writer Voices. My name is Tom Johnson and I'm the host. Today we're playing a presentation that Neil Perlin gave on creating help in the Web 2.0 age. He gave this to the Suncoast chapter in Tampa, Florida back in February of 2007. And here's just a brief description of, of the presentation. For years, technical communicators have created help on a mass industrial model, one finished help system for all users. But two technologies, XML and Web 2.0, offer ways to change that model, letting us create just-in-time help personalized to specific users' needs with content written by users themselves. How does this work? In the case of XML, a feature in a specific authoring tool, Flare, lets us automatically create help systems that reflect the needs of specific sets of users, possibly even specific users, when those users request help. In the case of Web 2.0, we get the flexibility to let end-users write content themselves, taking some of the load off technical communicators. This all sounds futuristic and idealistic, but the automatic Flare output has already been done on a test basis, and user-contributed content is all around us, in wikis for example. This presentation discusses the philosophy and technologies behind these two approaches to creating help. It illustrates the specific place in Flare that lets us create automatic, just-in-time output. It then looks at the philosophies, technologies, and implementation of user-contributed help. So, this presentation is like about an hour and a half, and if you don't know Neil Perlin, he has a lot of experience in technical communication, a quarter of a century at least, and he is an expert in all kinds of online help formats from WinHelp, HTML Help, CE Help, Java Help, RoboHelp, ForHelp, Flare, and others that are forgotten. He's a columnist and frequent speaker for STC and other professional groups and a member of the Boston Chapter STC. He is also creator and manager of the Beyond the Bleeding Edge STEM at STC's annual conference. Before we play the presentation, I just want to remind you that. Um, we're on the web at TechWriterVoices.com. And if you have any comments or feedback, you can send it to me at Tom at TechWriterVoices.com. You can also send it to Neil at the email that is listed on the show notes. All right, let's go to the presentation.
1: I'd like to thank you for inviting me. Thank Tom for making this happen. Uh, It's nice to come down here. This seems to be turning into an annual thing in January and February um, you'll be happy to know that when I left my house yesterday morning to fly down here, it was 16 degrees. You may have heard of temperatures like this. <laughs> <laughs> no.
2: Yeah, but it usually says south.
1: <laughs> I know. No, actually, I have a, a long-term client down in St. Pete who refuses to go north of Tampa because he's afraid he'll freeze to death. Um, does that sound like anybody you know? Okay. Actually, the funny thing is I used to kid him about it for years, and about three years ago I got a phone call, and this voice that sounded like a gravel truck, Neil, this is Mike. What? And it turned out he'd gone to a trade show in Atlantic City in February, come down with bronchitis for a month, so he just wanted to tell me that he was serious about never going north of Tampa again. Um, Okay, so what I want to talk about tonight is creating help in the Web 2.0 age And there's a whole bunch of issues here. What's help? What's Web 2.0? What exactly are we moving into? And I'll tell you that if anybody's planning on going to the annual conference in Minneapolis, where it will be warm come May, just just to reassure you, um, what I'm going to talk about tonight is actually a subset of a larger presentation that I'm giving, which is tentatively titled, Gee, It's Not My Aunt's Online Help Anymore. Because I actually had a young woman in a Flair class last summer, and we were having a very nice talk about the changes in online help. And she said, yeah, my aunt used to create online help in the early 90s using this tool called Doctor Help. And it's not my aunt's online help anymore. And I usually try not to have hysterics in front of people in a class, but it was touch and go then. So what I want to do is talk about really the direction in which things are going. Um, quick background. Come on. There we go. Okay. Basically, I've been doing this since February of '79. I started at a large, now defunct computer company called Digital Equipment Corporation. Have any has anybody never heard of Digital? I'm looking at you. Are you <laughs> yeah. Um, digital was my experience is that anybody who's let's say getting toward the younger end of the scale has never heard of this company. Digital was a powerhouse until the mid-90s, gave IBM a run for its money before being bought by Compaq and disappearing into Hewlett Packard. But I've been working on Hypertext since 1985, back when basically nobody knew what it was. And I spent most of my time explaining what it was before I could even sell you on why you needed to hire me to do it in the first place. So I've been working with Windows Help Microsoft WinHelp since either 89 or 90. It's getting a little vague. Uh, I've been using HTML since 91, back when nobody was quite sure what it was, and there really wasn't much to do with it anyway, unless you worked for a university or a large consulting company, because there was no such thing as an ISP back then. Got involved in training, consulting on the HATS, the help authoring tools, the Dr. Helps, the RoboHelps, etc. Um, in 95, and I've got, I got into XML single sourcing, structured documentation, mobile devices, blah, blah, blah since 98. And I spent three really entertaining years as the STC's lead representative to the World Wide Web Consortium. And um, is anybody here a programmer? Okay. Is anybody here married to a programmer? (laughs) Okay. The jokes aren't personal. Um, It's what we, what we, people often say about how programmers can't speak English, it's true especially in the W3C, since about a third of the membership is Asian, and a third of the membership is European. And English is at best a second language. And you sometimes see this reflected in documentation that comes out of the organization. But it is a fascinating organization, because the stuff that they're doing today that's total gibberish um, is what we'll take for granted five years from now. Just like HTML was total gibberish in 1991, and we take it for granted today. So um, what I want to talk about, from, okay, Web 2.0, three areas. <clears throat> um, I have to ask, how many of you have heard the term Web 2.0 in the first place? Okay, good. How many of you know what it means? <laughs> yeah, okay, I agree. Um, it's, I'll explain that. I'm going to spend some time talking about just what it is in the first place, how it relates to help. And then I'm going to give you two examples, a specific one, of the application of Web 2.0 principles for output, and then potentially for input. First thing I have to say, by the way, is that the term help is meaningless. The term help has been going out of use for years. It's It's been totally inaccurate for years. Because, you know, you say help, and somebody thinks of a help system from for Word or something like that. And help has gone way beyond that. Help is still a help system. You know, press F1 or click the help button or something like that. But help nowadays can be visual using something like Captivate or Camtasia. Um... Help can be an online reference guide done using a tool like RoboHelp or Flare. Help is, and then it starts getting very strange, um, podcasting is help. Video blogging is help. Um, Has anybody here gone into Second Life? Anybody heard of it? Okay, if you've never heard of it, Second Life is a virtual world. And companies are now starting to use Second Life to set up training and simulations. All right. Have you done anything like this? Not
2: was training and simulations.
1: But you sort of poked around in there? Yeah. Alright, I'm starting to poke myself because I'm going to be talking about this in Minneapolis. It's one more way in which we can provide training. So, let me start off. Web 2.0 and help. Help. Um, I'm going to use this thing because this way it lets me avoid standing in front of Bruce. But this is my little antenna, and I've had this thing for a long time. You can see I've dropped it a few too many times. So I think it's on its last legs, but this is a great little tool. So, okay, um, the web before web 2.0. All right, web 1.0. How many of you were working on the web in 92, 91? Anybody? Okay, one, okay, two, three sort of, okay. Alright, we'll, we'll just make believe he didn't say that. Mark was because he's old. Um, <laughs> Alright, the web, web 1.0, the original web was just static. If you remember the gray pages, black text on gray pages, which, you know, now you look at it and it's laughable, but at the time, it was about as wicked cool as you could possibly get. Um, hey, I remember my first modem. It was a 300-baud modem. As a matter of fact, it was. And this was about as awesome as you could possibly get that, oh, wow, I'm communicating through the phone. And look, I can see the individual characters appearing. Um, We went to Web 1.5. Dynamic pages generated on demand from a database, content management system, you saw this in something like Amazon. Amazon has something like, I don't know if anybody knows how many pages it has, it's over probably a million, or close to a million, and there's no way that you could maintain a million page website, and they don't. What they have instead is a database of all the information that makes up the books, and if you call for information about a book or a product, what it does is it runs a search, goes into the database, extracts, The information and passes it through a filter, through a template, and generates the output. All right. The important thing is this: that both were focused on page views. In other words, you wanted people to look at the stuff, um, but it was largely passive. In other words, you really didn't do anything with it. You just looked at it, and you might say, "Wow, this is cool." Um, You know, I had things. I remember using virtual bubble wrap as a web page. If anybody remember this, okay. This was um, it was a sheet of bubble wrap as a flash image, and you could click on it, and you would hear a little pop, 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 pop. pop. <laughs> there was a time that was cool, um, but it was largely passive. You know, you look at the stuff, great, fine, go to the next page. Both were created by specialists. Um, there w- were, and still are, a lot of web pages that are produced by amateurs. You know, somebody who creates their their cocker spaniels web page. I actually know somebody who did this. People who have their own home pages, you know, personal web pages. But for the most part, anything that was business-oriented is created by professionals, by specialists. Then we got to Web 2.0. Web two, the term Web 2.0 is about two years old. And it was coined by a guy named Tim O'Reilly, who's the president of O'Reilly Publishers. This is the company that publishes those programming books with the marsupials on the cover. Or some sort of weird animal. And it is, depending on who you listen to, it's either the latest and greatest incarnation of the web, or else it's pure marketing baloney. Or maybe both. There are elements of both in this. But um, some of the elements really apply to us, I think, in a significant way. And I'll explain why. If this thing decides to work, here we go. Um, This is a quote that I pulled and cut heavily. Partly because I couldn't fit it into—I wanted to fit it into one slide, and it was touch and go as it is. But uh, it's a network crucial point, spanning all connected devices. That means my computer and Karen's computer and Tom's computer. Um, delivering software as a continually updated service. In other words, pages are not static. Pages change. A blog, for example, changes sometimes daily, sometimes hourly. Uh, that gets better the more people use it. Because the more people use it, the more it gets refined. The more a sense I have of um, what are the different index keywords that should be applied, for example, to a particular webpage. What do you guys call that fizzy drink? Um, You know that stuff in those big uh, two liter plastic bottles out there? I'm sorry? Are you from Texas? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Um, soda, soft drink, pop, tonic. Um, yeah, the problem is I could be the world's greatest indexer, but I'm from Texas, let's say. I'm not, but go with me. So in Texas, everything is called Coke. So if you go go to a restaurant and say, I want a Coke, and they'll say, fine, what kind? And it leads to really entertaining discussions. Um But the point is, you know, I may be the world's best indexer, but my knowledge base is limited by what I know. Whereas if I get all of you involved, I'm also going to get people throwing in things like, well, it's also called pop and tonic and soda and, you know, something else I forgot, etc. So theoretically it gets better because we're getting more more input from more and more people with a wider and wider set of backgrounds and skill sets and knowledge. Remixing data from multiple sources, including individuals. We have something called a mashup, which I'll touch on a little bit later. But a mashup is basically almost like an ad hoc assemblage of different kinds of data from different sources that were never meant to be used together. Sort of like... Yeah, Mark? So
2: just to give us a visual, MySpace
1: and Wikipedia. Bingo. MySpace and Wikipedia are both Web 2.0. Okay. Bear with me, because I'm going to get to that specific examples. Because uh, through here, it's still sort of theoretically, yeah, cool, interesting. Um, Provides data and services that allows remixing. That's the mashup. Um, An example of a mashup, for example, there's a game called Goggles, G-O-G-G-L-E-S, that's a flight simulator that was discussed on the Kim Commando show, if anybody listens to this. Goggles is a flight simulator that uses Google Maps for the ground terrain. Now Google would never have imagined that some, uh, some company would pick Google Maps for use in a flight simulator, but because Google data was in a format that could be reused, it was possible. And the idea is, you know, you take this application and this application and that application and you sort of mash them together and you wind up with a new one. Yes? Any copyright
3: issues arising out of all of this or is it just obliterating
1: copyright? It, that's a good question. Um, any copyright issues arising out of this or is this just obliterating copyright? Um, the honest answer is I don't know. Because what seems to be happening is that companies are, if you do this, you're effectively saying, well, okay, hang on. If you do this, on the one hand, you're effectively saying that by assembling my data in this form, I am essentially giving you carte blanche to reuse it, because it's out there in a reusable form in the first place. On the other hand, I'll, I'll get to the other hand. So Um, Architecture of participation, going beyond the page metaphor. Yep, great. Um, Okay. Some doc-oriented attributes of Web 2.0. There's um, a couple of sources that I'm going to refer you to in a few minutes that give you a lot of information about Web 2.0 ranging from about an eight-page article to an entire book. But just to focus on the doc-oriented stuff, In other words, not us, but the doc oriented, I mean us, not the web, but pure doc. Content is key. And, you know, people have been saying for years content is king, and this is generally regarded as, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure, right. But here it's true, because now um, it's the content that carries the value. It's no longer the programs. You know, it's no longer the fact that Google itself carries the value, but it's Google Maps that carries the value. It's no longer the fact that uh, it's the soft, it's the database that drives Craigslist that carries the value, but it's the data in Craigslist that carries the value. So data really is crucial. Um, users provide much content. This is open to all kinds of interpretation, generally bad, but um, the theory in Web 2.0 is that users provide the content. It sounds strange, but user-provided content has been with us for years. Does anybody here watch The Planet's Funniest Animals? Mm -hmm. They will admit it? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Good. Um, Okay. The Planet's Funniest Animals is a Web 2.0 TV show. Um, If you think about it, America's Funniest Home Videos is Web 2.0. There is no content that's part of the show. The show is a framework into which content is plugged in the form of cute videotapes from users. It's a Web 2.0 TV show. And the idea is that uh, a wiki, Wikipedia is Web 2.0, users provide the content. A blog is Web 2.0, users provide the content. MySpace is Web 2.0. YouTube is Web 2.0. Something else, a whole bunch of things. uh, BitTorrent is Web 2.0. Flickr Flickr is Web 2.0. Yep. Um, And as you can imagine, there's a whole bunch of issues here. Because the question is, do you trust your users to provide content in a usable, meaningful, consistent, structured form? Does anybody trust your users to do this? (laughs) Okay, I didn't think so. Um, I'll get to this. Um, It is classified, there's a new term, um, it's classified by what's referred to as folksonomies, rather than taxonomies. All right. If um, if your family laughs at you when you talk, I guarantee this is just going to make things worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My wife just walks out of my office in hysterics every time I'm on the phone. I'm
3: surprised it's spelled right.
1: Folksonomy. Well,
3: the whole thing of this content coming from the folk, it's supposed to be raw, things
1: are later. Well. Well, it is, but here's the thing. And I go back to my example of Coke versus soda, you know, versus whatever. Okay. Because the idea is that you might be a much better indexer or a much better taxonomist than I'll ever be. But I'm from Boston, so I know that a sandwich that consists of cold cuts inside a loaf of tubular bread in South Boston is known as a depth charge. You may never have heard of this. All right? Oh boy. Po' boy. A wedge, a an Italian, a hoagie, a hero, a gyro, a submarine. Anybody want to keep going? <laughs> hero. Hero. It, hero. A, hero. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, do a G-Y-R-O. Yeah. Um, an Italian, a subway in Calgary. Um, in Calgary, Canada, the, tur- the store name and the sandwich name have become synonymous. And again, you know, any one taxonomist will never know all these names. But when you get a whole bunch of people, the theory is that when you get a whole bunch of people feeding in their knowledge, what you get is what a guy, a uh, a theorist named James Seroweki, calls the wisdom of the crowd. Individually, none of us knows as much as the best taxonomist, but collectively, we know more. I'm curious
2: as to how the wiki is so well cataloged and organized. It really is, considering
1: yeah. Yeah, that's a major problem, which I'll get to in a few slides. Because providing content is one thing, but making it retrievable is something else entirely. They've done a good job. They have. They've done a surprisingly good job. Some of that is based on their template, which asks you for things like retrieval. Have any of you uh, submitted to Wikipedia? Yes. Okay. And you know how the template asks you to put in some retrieval keywords? Mm-hmm. That's, that's why. Uh, because it asks you. If it didn't ask you, you wouldn't do it. Or you probably wouldn't do it. And you might you might have the world's greatest article on how to make a good Cuban sandwich, but I might never find it. Because I wouldn't know what to look for. Um, server basis. Documentation is sitting on a server. Documentation becomes web-based, which means all of a sudden there's no release dates. We're in a perpetual release cycle now. Because anytime something changes, it's not a, no longer a matter of printing the new books, printing the new binders, throwing out the old binders, mailing the new stuff. You just upload it to a website. All right, this is either an absolute horror show, or it's one of the greatest things that's ever been provided. Because you know, if you think about it, um, I think way well, imagine we've all worked on late. You know, late night releases, last minute releases, and you know what a pain in the neck it is, because you have a release date, and you have to coordinate the printing and the shipping and the binders, and the kitting and the storage and the mailing. Now that goes away. All you do is you make your change and you upload it to the website. Boom, done. Uh, open design allows reuse of content by you, and possibly by others, and this is with a, partly with a mashup comes in. In other words, if I create my content in a consistent, standardized structure, code syntax, format, then as long as you know what that format is, as long as you know what that syntax is, you should be able to reuse my content automatically, or semi-automatically rather than having to take the Word file that I wrote and change the styles or apply styles, or you know, do God knows what to the styles. If I if if I can force all of us to write according to a particular format, style, code syntax, that makes the stuff reusable. And finally, interesting point: um, Web 2.0 gives us ways to possibly make the doc group no longer a cost center but a profit center. Because, and I know that sounds odd. <clears throat> but there are some models here. Do you guys know for, um, you know, Amazon is, uh, has a huge revenue stream. I'm not sure what their profits are yet. But do you know where Amazon's data came from? Anybody know? Amazon never created its own data. Amazon took the ISBN database <clears throat> that was produced by a company called R.R. Bowker, B-O-W-K-E-R, which was very text-oriented, plain, very spartan, and they started jazzing it up. They jazzed it up uh, more. More descriptions, uh, screenshots of the title pages. They allowed user evaluations. They threw in references. You know, Tom, you were interested in books about uh, grouper fishing in the Florida Keys. Well, maybe you'd also be interested in this book uh, about the perfect storm. You know, it gives you suggestions based on your past purchasing habits. But that all started based on an open source database from RR Bowker. So what Amazon did was what's sometimes referred to as embrace and extend. They took the RR Bowker information and they jazzed it up. And the jazz up became what defined Amazon. Um, Google Maps is based on large part on data from MapQuest, uh, which in turn comes from several companies, one of which I think is called NavTech. Anybody here do mapping? Geographic information systems. Yeah, Navtech. Yeah, but Navtech never really did much with the maps. They just published them, put the maps out. Fine, okay, there it is. But what Google is doing is allowing like map annotation and all kinds of extra features. So, um, you know, they don't own the data, but they're extending it. Or you might own the data. You know, if you work for, say, a large insurance company, there might be a particular type of information that all companies in the insurance industries use, but no one has ever put it online because it's too much trouble. Well, you might put it online and sell subscription services to all your competing insurance companies. All of a sudden, potentially, you become a profit center, and Web 2.0 would allow this. So, that's great. This is really cool. All right, Web 2.0 lets you do all this stuff. Big deal. Well, here's the thing. If you think about where help is going, help has been evolving for years toward the web. All right. Until 1997, help was considered completely separate from the web. You were a help developer. You were a web developer. But it was very rare to find somebody who sort of crossed the lines. In 1997, Help became HTML-based when Microsoft released HTML Help, but it was still considered two separate paths until late 97, early 98, when a company called, at the time, Blue Sky Software, then eHelp, RoboHelp, released WebHelp. One word. Because WebHelp, for the first time, took Help and turned it into a website. And at that point, all of a sudden, Help and the Web started to converge. And this is continuing today because the web is all over the all over the place. The web is pervasive beyond belief. Everybody knows this. Um, I taught a I think she's 91 year old buddy of my wife's how to do email, and it was really entertaining because she was terrified and she couldn't figure out how to hold the mouse. You know, one of these things, and I finally, I told her, if you don't hold the mouse the way I'm showing you, I'm going to duct tape it to your hand. (laughs) And, you know, she giggled and uh, offered me some cookies, and we had a good time. Um, But she wanted to get online. Web's very pervasive. And you know sometimes how you don't realize how pervasive something is until somebody makes an analogy? I, was at the, I spoke at the IEEE conference in Saratoga Springs in whatever it was, about four or five months ago. And the keynote speaker was a guy named Elliot Macy. Anybody know uh, Macy? Okay. Um, Macy runs, he's a, an e-learning consultant based out of Saratoga Springs, New York. He gave the keynote, and he had an excellent point um, about just how pervasive the web is getting. And he said he was giving a speech to a bunch of people. I forget who or where now. But he asked them, where do you turn most often when you need help? Expecting that people would say help or the person in the next cube. And he said every single person in the room said Google. How many of you go to Google when you need help? Think about it. Yeah, okay. Sometimes before you even open up the application, help. You go straight to Google. You know, if if it's an application-specific question, you go to the help. But if it's sort of a concept-related kind of question, I tend to go straight to Google. And it never even occurred to me until he said it, and I had one of those sort of, oh yeah, moments. And users' expectations have changed, and in order to fit into this, we need to start developing based on a web model. Because if we don't, our help is going to start, our user assistance is going to start becoming less and less used. So a couple of things. Personalization some big picture things. Personalization is becoming key. All right, um, some of you remember when we had three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Um, and, well, yeah. And, yep, true. And, you know, I mean, I watch, at one point I sat down to figure out just what I watch on TV, and it turns out it's the Food Network, Animal Planet, and the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, so don't, don't say anything but you know 20 years ago this stuff didn't even exist and you can find uh, there's uh, the law channel um, I don't know there's ever any kind of channel imaginable in other words it's not uh, entertainment is becoming personalized and it's not quite down to the level of Neil TV yet it's on demand, but it's on demand and it's getting increasingly personalized plus with things like TiVo, TiVo Tivo is starting to personalize TV more. So people are coming to expect this in entertainment and the culture. Um, Closed help is becoming dated. A closed help system, what I mean here is like a compiled help system, like Windows help or Microsoft HTML help. You compile it and you send the user one help system and that's it. Participation, social networking, Uh, increasingly popular among younger users, and sometimes I'm a little bit taken aback to find out just who's posting videos to YouTube. Um, I mean, I've got a friend who actually lives in Vero. He's in his early 60s, and he's one of the most non-techie people I know. And at one point, he told me that he had just written an entry about something about the history of the early Byzantine church, and he was one of the contributors to that entry in Wikipedia. And I just did one of these, you? And, you know, it's all over the place. Everybody's doing this. So, seven predictions out of this, which form the basis for everything else I'm going to talk about. The term help, like I said earlier, is going out of use. Um, the term, people have been throwing around the term user support for years. For at least, I think the term came out about seven or eight years ago, and nobody used it because it's too much of a mouthful. It's so much easier to say help. But the term help is no longer a good description of what we do. What we do is user support. And user support can be help, could be a wiki, could be a blob, well, sorry, blog, blob comes later, um, a swift, shockwave flash movies done using Captivate or Camtasia or Mimic. Or if you're a, a serious gearhead, directly through Flash, uh, could be through Google, could be a Second Life simulation, you name it. Upfront planning is crucial. Yeah, please. That What's it? What? Se- Second Life. Uh, Second Life is that virtual world. It's if you go, actually if you look for Second Life.com, mm-hmm. and it's uh, the the home. I get the developer is a company called Linden Software, L-I-N-D-E-N. Yep. And it's an interesting idea because um, anybody here uh, ex-military? Okay, what, what branch? Alright, I'm ex-Navy myself, but it's okay. Um, there's, you, know, you spend a lot of time doing training for things like firefighting. Um, it, in the Navy, they do a lot of training for firefighting and subs. Because obviously if you're submerged and you have an engine room fire, you'd better get it taken care of quickly. And the thing is, this is dangerous. People have been injured in training simulations. People have been killed in simulations. And if I can build a simulation, a simulated simulation, that at least teaches you the basics before you go into the real simulator, the odds are that you're going to learn faster and you'll be safer. All right, upfront planning for all this is crucial because there's a temptation in the past to sort of dive in. All right, I was a doc manager. The last time I had a real job was er, in the uh, early 80s. I was a doc group manager at Digital, and at the time, there was a management philosophy that was known as, there's never enough time to do it right, but there's always time to go back and fix it. You all know this. Okay, This changed in later years. It's now known as Ready, Fire, Aim. Oh, damn. Um,
2: Laughter
1: you got a plan. You can no longer just jump into a project without thinking about what you're doing, because there are so many facets to the project. The technologies are changing, the methodologies are changing, and this we may have to rethink what we create. I have some of you I know. Most of you I don't. You know, we've met, we've had some nice conversations, but I don't know what you're doing. But I do run into a lot of places that are—they're still using ForHelp, even though ForHelp died six years ago. They're still doing. Uh, they're still creating Microsoft Windows help, even though Windows help was officially put to sleep in February of '97, and supposedly finally, this time really most sincerely killed <laughs> with the release of Vista, maybe. Um, but you know, they're still doing that. Still doing Java help. Still doing Oracle help, because it's sort of like, well, my aunt did Java help, and it was good enough for her or we've been doing it for years and it seems to be working, so we'll just keep doing it. It's time to rethink what we're doing. Uh, Local or proprietary help formats will die. Anybody here from Microsoft? (laughs) Good. Um, Win help, Windows help, dead. HTML help, rapidly dying. Help 2.0, basically dead. Does anybody here support help 2.0? Anybody know what it was? Anybody ever heard of it? Um, well, that's part of the problem. Help 2.0 was going to be the next generation after HTML help, the CHM file. And they never, it was supposed to be the help format for XP, Windows XP. They never got it, got it done in time. It just Well, that was a minor problem. It, well, it actually did work for .NET applications. It
2: did not work on a .NET
1: platform for us. Really? That's it. Do you know Nikki Blyle? Talk to her. All right. It's, yeah, it's more just out of intellectual curiosity, like, you know, what happened here. Basically, they never got it finished in time, and for some people, it just didn't work. Now they're going for Vista help. And are any of you using Vista now? Anybody I heading? the uh, I would agree there was a survey that came out in computer world last week and something like only two percent of the market right now said that they're planning on convert on switching to Vista and office 2007 before the end of this year now eventually it will dominate All right we have a bet here um, (Laughter) But the problem is the help system. Even if Vista succeeds, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually make a bet because I just don't know, even if it succeeds, Vista help is so Microsoft proprietary that I wound up talking to the lead of the Microsoft help developer, uh, development group two years ago at the Writers UA conference, and I said to him, so um, what are you guys planning on doing about building in support into Vista help for non-Microsoft platforms. In other words, you know, non-Windows, non-IE, etc. And he gave me the. And I've known this guy for years. And he gave me this sort of what are you stupid look. And he said, No, why would we want to do that? And I just said, oh, Okay, um, because Microsoft is its own world. Is call it called Longhorn or did you ever call it Longhorn? Long, that was the original name? That was the uh, the pre-release name, and it became Vista. Yep, that was exactly it.
3: Back to I mean it goes back to having a notepad to work on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very
1: bizarre. Yeah, it's it's rough to put it mildly. But my argument is that it's so Microsoft centric that it's going to die. It's going to be replaced by web help. Um, get one. Um, yeah.
4: You said that um, will die or fade into.
1: And niches is what we were talking about
4: earlier. Mm-hmm.
1: There is still so much of. It, oh, absolutely.
4: Especially
1: in the south. Oh, there are enormous niches. I mean, there's tons of business to be found in niches. The only pro- how many of you are independent consultants? Okay. Um, if you're an independent consultant, niches are great. As long as your entire concentration doesn't go into a niche to the exclusion of everything else going on around it, which sometimes happens, focus on the niches, but make sure you look outside as well. And even for those of you who have real jobs, so to speak, um, there's work in the niches, but make sure that you keep an eye on what's going on outside niches. Come to STC meetings. Find out what's going on outside your company. Because if you don't, like... A lot of people at digital, for example, had real trouble transitioning after digital died because digital was its own world and largely a closed world. And you might be an expert at uh, runoff or NROF or TROF, but nobody in their right minds outside digital would ever touch these things. And all of a sudden you try to get a new job and you would say, Yeah, I'm an expert in TROF. That's nice. Um Yeah. <laughs> text based help uh, we have the possibility of generating help dynamically on user request and this is not theory, this has been done using one specific tool called Flare, I'll talk about that in the next section non-writers will provide content <coughs> your programmers your subject matter experts the people who are actually creating the apps are going to provide content for us It's going to be either finished products, like a help system, or a document, procedure document. Or it might be raw material. In other words, it's not a finished product that's ready to be published, but it's a chunk of material that might be reused for other outputs. And this stuff is going to come from non-professional writers. Count on it. So the question is, how do we make it happen? And I do have some suggestions, which I'll get to. Content authoring, in order to make all this stuff work without us killing ourselves, content authoring is going to have to get more controlled. Which brings us to something called structured writing, structured authoring. Anybody know what this is? Okay, I'm sorry? Okay, uh, we have one definition. It's a wiki. No, I mean the way wiki is Oh, okay, yeah. Um, any other definitions? Structured writing? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, what is it? Or what is structured authoring? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, sounds good. Um I wrote a course last just about a year ago for a company, a consulting company in Boston. The subject was structured authoring. And I started off by saying what is structured authoring? I don't know. Here are three definitions. And one definition was you use styles. Simple as that. Second definition was you use templates with attached style sheets. Simple as that. The third definition was that a document can be considered, in order to be considered structured, a document must uh, adhere to an XML, DTD, or XSD. All right, and you notice how the technical level just took several quantum leaps there. The biggest problem... Isn't so much the technology, but making sure that you pick a definition that fits with your company's culture. Because I have had clients, one in particular, I mentioned this to a couple of guys before the meeting, a bank in Connecticut, who had some documents where they were using, they did these in Word. They used Heading 1, Heading 3, and Heading 6. They used Heading 3 style in Word for the title. They used Heading 6 style in Word for the subtitles and they used heading 1 in word for half the table column heads the other half of the table column heads they hand formatted to look like heading 1 did anybody follow what i just said here okay good yeah and oh they couldn't they couldn't figure out why you know why the why the table of contents wouldn't quite work and you know Mark knows, Karen knows, when you're a consultant, you take an oath under a full moon <laughs> never to grab a client by the lapels and start shaking and saying, what were you thinking? But it was touch and go with these people. And because they they had about a thousand pages of procedure documents that they needed to move from paper, from hard copy to online, at the time using RoboInfo, and we started off with me saying, what version of Word, under what version of Word were these documents written? And they all went into a sort of a huddle, and they came out, and somebody said, we don't think it was Word. Okay, um, do you remember what it was? No, but it started with M. Anybody remember something that started with M before Word, before Microsoft Word? Who said that? way to go, Multimate Advantage. For those of you who have never heard of Multimate Advantage, and there's a couple of you that I'm looking at in particular, Multimate was the word of its day in, let's say, what, the mid-80s? Mid to late-80s? But, you know, this document was so old that people had completely lost control of it. Um, So the problem with structured writing is that you have to pick a definition that fits your company's culture. Because if you don't, to take this company and tell them that their material had to adhere to, a, to an XSD, they would have thrown me out the door. And they would have been fully justified in doing so. So you need to define what structured writing, structured authoring is. Publishing cycle will never end, no more release dates, which is either a bad thing or a good thing. Because I would argue that it's a good thing. Because it, I'm sorry? There's no closure. There's, well, yeah, there's no closure. But Which is good because there's no, no more errata sheets. No more addenda sheets. No more 24-hour overnight cycles. Well, granted. Um, well, it, but it's a non-stop party. It's a non-stop release cycle. It's a non-stop party. Um, tool skills are going to become crucial. If you're using a tool now, you have to know how the tool works. The old idea where somebody says, you know, management says, "Here, we've just bought you a copy of RoboHelp for 1,000 bucks. go use it. <laughs> well, can I get training? No, we can't afford it. Um, management is becoming crucial. If you've ever worked, picked up a project that your predecessor worked on but never documented, and you have to try to figure out what your predecessor did. Or what's really embarrassing is if you pick up a project that you worked on a year ago but didn't document and you're trying to figure out what you did. I did this once. Um, Operational skills. What is a server? What's the difference between web help versus web space help? Is there a difference between HTML capital H help and HTML lowercase h help? Yes. Is... If somebody says that Flare is x uh, supports XHTML, does that mean it's XML? You've got to know these things. Because if you don't, you can make some serious mistakes in picking tools, developing procedures, developing workflows. And it's just getting more complicated. Winging it is becoming dangerous. Yeah. What percentage of my time would I devote to learning? How
2: many hours a day are you winging? what
1: she's asking? Pretty much. uh, You you can either be producing and earning, or you can be learning how to produce. Yeah, a lot of it is learn while you're earning. But don't wing it. Don't wing it. Um, So I always, see, part of my problem is that a lot of what I do tends to be out on the edge. So I'm often uh, learning when there's no learning materials yet. There are cases where... Basic, well, but I, I wing it as a consultant. But then I'll come in and tell you. I get paid to wing it. Um, let's put it this way. I, um, are you guys familiar with DITA? Anybody, uh, has anybody never heard of DITA? DITA? Darwin Information Typing Architecture. This is an XML-based language for structured documentation. I belong to the Boston DITA Group. A year ago, I could barely spell DITA. Um, I made the mistake in December of not coming to the planning meeting. And somebody emailed me a couple of weeks later to say, we just nominated you to do a DITA for Dummies presentation. Oh, like DITA for non-technical users. So, you know, three months from now, I'm going to be an expert in DITA. Um, Tom, I actually have to talk to you about uh, WordPress. And I was supposed to talk to Mark Lewis about InVision because these are some of the things that I'm going to be talking about when I give this presentation. But, you know, I spend a lot of time learning, but it tends to be pretty much on a constant roll. I spend a lot of time on planes. And if you you know these people, these guys who come in, sit down next to you, grunt at you, and never look up again, I tend to be one of them because I spend all my time reading on planes. I have the perfect solution to crying babies. I'm sorry? Well, granted, it was because I was sitting next to you. It just took my breath away. Um, What's the solution to crying babies? solution to crying babies, I travel with balloons in my laptop case. And I've been doing this for about 20 years. And it has worked every single time. Crying baby, take a balloon out, (laughs) blow it up. You know, play with the neck, make the the noises. Blow it in their hair. Within five minutes, they stop. <laughs> I'd like to take credit, but some saint gave me this idea about twenty years ago. Oh man, I wish you told me that about eating. I've yeah. We've all been on flights like that. I thought solution was I'm sorry. thought
4: solution was to not fly with them.
1: Well, there is that, but especially coming down to Orlando. <laughs> Forget it. Here is what I would read. If you want to get a good sense of what Web 2.0 is, the first one is the actual definition from O'Reilly. It's, called, it's actually a longer name, but I couldn't fit it here. It's about 17 pages, and he gets into the technologies, the methodologies, the philosophies, but since uh, O'Reilly was one of the original I don't want to say developers, that's not quite the right word, people who came up with the idea Promoters. promoter, yeah, That's a little bit too hypey, but it's a good word. Promulgator. This is very positive. It's a very rah-rah kind of thing. Then you read this, the Wikipedia article, which is still positive, but looks at some of the dark side. Then what I would do is read this book. Um, Smart Mobs. This book came out, I think, about five years ago. And it was sort of like Hipper Than Thou about five years ago, but it, was, it talked about things like social networking, webs of trust, um, early mashups, and all this stuff that we're starting to see implemented today. I would read this book. Excellent book. Alright, so in a nutshell, um, what is Web 2.0? It is, large for, for our purposes, it's largely a combination of two things. It's technologies, ranging from XML, to RSS, to DITA, to AJAX, to Atom. Um, It's a uh, a syndication standard. To I don't know, Tom, you want to throw anything in there? Okay. Um, Anything else would just be added gibberish. But it's also a philosophy. The philosophy being that content can come from users... Uh, and it can be reused by users in unplanned ways for unplanned purposes. So, technology and philosophy. All right. So, before I move off this, is everybody still coherent? Coherent? As
3: much as
1: before. As much as before? Okay. So I haven't made you worse.
3: No. Okay. I'll settle.
1: I'll settle for that. Okay. Any questions on this so far? Okay. Good. Right, so far, everything I've, talk, I've talked about, you could argue, is interesting, I hope, but conceptual. What I want to talk about now is uh, some real implementations. The first one I want to talk about is an output implementation of Web 2.0. Um, the way we typically produce help today, whether it's with RoboHelp or Dr.Help or uh, anybody use Authorit? Author, it anybody using Flare in here yet? Whatever the tool is, we typically produce one system. It's a help system that goes out to the user with the application. It's closed. The user cannot modify it. And it's a closed package system for all the users. In other words, no matter that my interests uh, and Tom's might be totally different, you know, we might be interested in totally different aspects of a product. We get one help system. Which means that half the information in there is not only worthless to Tom, but it gets in his way. Yeah. Same thing for me. Problem is, this can give give more information than we want users to see, or, um, or just give, like I said, too much information that you have to wade through. Or it could be that Um, You know, there are modules of the application that you haven't bought. So I don't want you to see what the features are of those modules that you haven't bought. Which I think is, I've always thought was kind of silly. Because I've always thought that if you tell me what I'm missing, I'm going to get so excited that I'll go out and buy those additional modules. But, you know. Kind of like working on a network where somebody else decides what you need. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. They're also hard to manage. They're hard to update. Because any time something changes, you have to redo the whole thing. So here's two questions. Can we personalize the help? Yeah, absolutely. Granularize. Granularize is a horrible word I just made up when I did this. But in other words, can we make the help more fine-grained, more focused, more granular? And can we only output it when necessary? That's the second salient point. There's no help available until somebody asks for it. And the answer is yes. Obviously, or else I also wouldn't be asking the question, but um, yeah, we can certainly personalize the help by using things like conditional build tags, conditionality if you're a FrameMaker user, um, variables, Flare offers tremendous power in terms of variables. Dreamweaver has offered library items for years. RoboHelp 6 just added variables as a feature, finally. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of tools that we can create to personalize the help. Um, But here's the thing. We're still creating multiple help systems. Even if they're more personalized, we're still creating... There's the left side of the room help system, center of the room help system right side of the room help system but it turns out that I'd like to be able to personalize things more because Bruce needs certain kinds of help that, I'm sorry, sorry, Clyde? Yes. that Clyde doesn't need Clyde needs certain kinds, you get the idea so I'd like to be able to personalize it to this table or maybe this guy can I do that? sorry? well, it could be cookies Um, there's actually a number of ways to do this but, you know, there's still multiple help systems that I have to take care of. Which means, if I produce the right side of the room help system...
3: Yeah? If you're dealing with conditional build tags, you're dealing with one help, and your outputs are dictated. it's not really multiple help systems if you're going into the source file.
1: Well, but it's single sourcing. But I'm, out, I'm creating multiple help systems out of it. Out of one. Out of one set of source material... True, I don't have to maintain multiple ones, but remember that when I generate the right side of the room help, that has to go into the right side of the room help folder on the server. The middle of the room help goes into the middle of the room folder on the server, etc. In other words, I have to track where I place the mul- different outputs that I'm creating. Can't you just pull real
2: time from a centralized
1: repository and ask you to you're not. Uh-huh. Can I just pull from a centralized repository on an as-needed basis? Yeah. The problem is that our current help authoring systems don't support this yet. In order to do that, you need something like a content management system. The problem with a CMS is that, if nothing else, they're incredibly expensive. You know, $25,000, $70,000. I used to know a woman years ago in Boston who was a market analyst for a venture capital firm. And we were having lunch one day, and we were discussing uh, Documentum, which she thought was the greatest. Anybody here use Documentum? All right. Um, I don't know the official price. The word was it was half a million to buy it and roughly half a million in consulting fees. Does that seem about right? Yeah, OK. And I said to her, you know, these things are too expensive. And I said, Documentum costs $500,000. And she did one of these sort of Boom, no, the prices are way down. And she said you can get Documentum Lite, for se- or whatever it was, for $70,000. And I just started laughing, and I said, big deal. 70000 500000 If you're in a doc group that has to fight like mad to get authorization for a copy of RoboHelp, you're going to spend $70,000 no away. So you're right, you could do it using CMSs. But CMSs are still incredibly expensive. I got um, at the last STC conference in Vegas last year. Somebody told me that there was a vendor out somewhere on the floor that had a cheap, affordable content management system, and I remember thinking, "All right, good. I have to talk to these these people because I want it." And I went over and I said, "I'm so and so. You know, so and so told me that you have an affordable." personal level CMS system that's really cheap. And the guy looked kind of dubious and he said, well, if you think $25,000 is cheap. And I said, thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. In other words, this stuff's expensive. True, but again, think who the users are. See, what I'm saying here is for those people right now who need to transition from traditional help authoring to a more flexible approach, this approach, this one specific approach lets you do it. Um, right now, there's only one tool that can do this, and that's Flare from Madcap. Um, Flare has two features that until about two weeks ago, no other tool had. Those two features are command line builds. In other words, I can generate the, a Flare project without opening Flare. On, you know, Most tools, if you use any sort of authoring tool, you know the tool has to be open and then in GUI mode and you generate it. With command line build, I can generate the output without opening the tool. The other feature is this. Uh, Now, this changed because Flare's primary competitor is RoboHelp. And until about two weeks ago, RoboHelp did not have command line build. Two weeks ago, RoboHelp 6 came out and they added command line build with some peculiarities. But it does have command line build The other thing that Flare has that nobody else has that I know of is output target control files that are based on XML. And it's the XML that's crucial. Because here's what you do. By having command line build, like I said, you can generate the output without having to open the tool in the first place. What this means, for example, is that the help generation can be made part of the weekly build. They're the daily project build. You know, If you're doing a help system for an application, generally the programmers build the application and you build the help and eventually the two come together. But now the programmers could automatically make the help generation part of the, the help build, part of the application build. Even though your, your programmers don't have Flare, they've never heard of Flare, but by simply adding a, this line of code their build script, they can now automatically generate the help on the flight. Or, bottom point, it can be done dynamically on request. So, all right, Flare has what are called targets. Every tool at this point has the equivalent of a target. RoboHelp calls them single source layouts. Does anybody here use anything besides RoboHelp or Flare if you're doing online help authoring? Anybody else? Okay. Um, it could be just a web help for the North American market, web help for the South American market, web help for the European market, etc. But here is some of the custom, customization you can do. Any output can be customized by having a different skin. You guys, Anybody know what a, what a skin is? It's like a faceplate. Alright, different tables of contents, different build tags variables, startup topics, style sheet mediums. This is a whopper of a feature that's very little known yet, and a bunch of other things. And um, I think if memory serves me correctly, there's nine separate things, nine separate features that you can vary. And the way you calc- you know how you calculate the number of permutations if you have nine separate features? Anybody remember high school algebra? Yeah, it's called factorial. 9 times 8 times 7 times 6 times 5. So whatever that number is, it's a big number. Um, All right, all the settings are stored in this file called the TAR, target, F-L-T-A-R, flare target. It's in XML. That's crucial because if it's in XML, it can be generated on the fly by a script. And here is an example of a target file. This is an actual Flare target file. Um, It's XML. If nothing else, this tells you it's XML. All right. What you see here is a very simple file. You notice it says catapult target. A little trivia. Flare's original name was catapult before they changed it to Flare. Actually, the the idea was if you need help, you send up a flare. That was actually where the name came from. Um, Right here, condition tag expression equals, and what this is saying is include any topic that has either the Florida tag or the Louisiana tag. And this tells it to extract and build any material tagged that way and generate the the output on the flight. All right, so when you tell Flare to generate, it simply finds the appropriate target file and builds. All right, this is great. I know you're all fascinated by this. Um, how, how would this work in practice? And this comes back to uh, Mark's point earlier about build out of a database. In effect, you're almost doing that. You could use this feature in such a way that when the, when your company ships a product you don't ship a help system. Okay. What you do is um, you ship the entire collection of source files, and when the user asks for help, the system knows who the user is. The system knows who I am from my login, knows what my login privileges are, and it can run that target file and extract the appropriate material and build it on the flight.
2: Or it can just
1: go get it on the internet. If... If the, material, if the material is on the internet, but you know, well, hold that thought a second because you're right. That's
2: the way a lot of action.
1: Yeah, it, you're right. It is. One of the things you could do is predefine a number of targets. So you know, there's the left, middle, and right targets, and the system knows that I belong to the middle group. So when I call for help, it just runs the middle version and spits out that help. Yeah, that's pretty easy. Um, second more powerful approach unlike the first one where I predefined the control files the system knows who I am based on my login and it actually generates the target files on the fly and then builds accordingly this works like a charm this has been done um, this was done in Flare 1 by a large financial services company whose name I can't tell you but starts with D that's all I'm allowed to say Um, you know what this is limited by? And Mark, I think your your scenario you know you're saying this is similar to what's been what's done now. It's limited by build speed, by network traffic load. Because if if I'm your user and I call for help and I'm sitting there for 30 seconds while it's building the help system and then it's sort of trickling down to my screen because of heavy network traffic, you know that I'll never use that help system. Again, I'll just turn to the person in the next cubicle. Um, a model, well, this model would work under those circumstances also. I'd need to know more about exactly what the configuration was, but yeah, I'd say it would work. All right, there's a third possibility, which is you actually set up the application so that as the application is loading, it generates the appropriate help systems on the flight. So when I call for help, I don't have to wait while the user generates the help, because it's already been generated. It generated it when I opened the application, knowing who I am based on my login. That makes so sense. So
3: you have so to you wait have while the, the app opens. The
1: app. You'd have to wait while the app opens, but if you think about it, you're almost never going to call for help while the app is opening. Yeah. You're going to call for help when you're using the app. So if it adds a few seconds to the app opening, you'll probably you'll never notice it. Or, you know, it's just part. G. The app seems to be a little slow. Um, this is feasible. This is a way to automatically generate the help on the fly, and tailor it to exactly who I potentially exactly who I am. It could be middle of the room help, but it could be front table middle of the room help. Potentially, it could be meal help. <coughs> if um, does this sound theoretical? No. Okay, good. Has anybody done anything like this using something else, like a repository? Do you know uh, of an, um, an implementation like this? Okay, if anybody's looking for, if anybody wants to try this and is looking for an excuse to go to Boston in October, um, I'm running a half-day workshop on actually doing this at the code level for the DocTrain conference. Just a little blatant self-promotion. Um, I re-
4: I worked for a company, a Kendall-Man company, and we included the builds, the Robohub builds, to protect our Robohub files with your clear case. And the developer actually built the help the
1: same of time as they built the app. Wouldn't surprise me. There was
2: probably a lot of
4: programming behind it.
1: Okay, and th- you're right. There was probably a lot of programming behind it because unlike those days, this is XML. And because it's an XML, you don't need a programmer to generate it. The programmer just has to write a script. All right, let me to go from this to uh, the input application of Web 2.0. All right, and there's a uh, classic joke here. Okay, if you've been in tech, tech comm for say 15 minutes, you know this joke. Uh, The punchline about user provided content is let's let the programmers write it. Okay, if there's anything I find that's calculated to just get a laugh, even if it's an unpleasant one, it's that. But the irony is, the idea keeps popping up because when you think about it, the people who are the most likely, who know the material best, are the programmers. Problem is they just can't write, or they can't write well. They can't write as well as we can. I'm sorry. Yeah, but but are they are they readable? Right. But remember, I'm not talking about functional specs. I'm talking about documentation. Right. Okay. It's possible you you may be living in a very a much higher plane than I am. Uh, well, I'm serious. I mean, there are places. Do
3: we have, do we have uh, people doing test scripts and entering them yes. into a central yep. location where you can review them and
0: mm-hmm.
3: use them for, and for your own outlines. Yep. I'd rather have the, the, the BAs do that or the
4: testers
2: mm-hmm. do that. But just interesting. Disney last year, they mm-hmm. will dissolve the title of technical
1: team they're all business analysts. They're all uh, business Okay. Involved
2: from the onset. You know, your, your functional specs, mm-hmm. which are really the business requirements and the spend. True. And they go right in, and you start using um, what's the new, new name for, um, I'm just kidding, I'm
1: 50. Minutes. Sorry. You're, you're, all, you're allowed to have uh, lapses? No, uh, the uh, quality center. Okay. So that concept about that, we become the sneeze. If we get involved in a project from true. the funding point
2: all the way through to implementation, mm-hmm. by the time implementation rolls around, we the fact are the de facto subject matter experts. We are the ones who are the business. We are the ones who are
1: mm-hmm. Okay, Th- that's perfectly true. There are many cases where the doc people are the subject matter experts.
2: But that's the new model. That, in fact, that's what the money is, unless you want to be a commodity
1: buyer. Well, yeah, but there's still a, lot of, still a lot of cases where you know, the programmers write, but they can't write. So they write something, and then the doc people do something with it to make it legible. But what we well, need
2: to do is stop being intimidated as technical communicators and say, look, we
1: need Okay, to do well, that's true. Th- that I'll grant you. Okay. But um, what I'm thinking about here is not so much being intimidated but simply shifting the, the content development model so that the people, for those cases where the, the subject matter expert and the writer, or whatever we're called, are two different people. You know, you're the, you're the programmer, you write the material, you give it to me, and I clean it up. And um, Disney is different, but there are a lot of places where, and I can think of many I've been in, you know, with a The writer is swamped. It would really help if the programmers could write the stuff, but the programmers don't want to write. You know, the writer is convinced that the programmers can't write anyway. And the problem is, I found that we keep trying to turn programmers into writers, into tech writers, and that doesn't work because they don't want to be writers. What I've found though is that we can make them better writers. And I've actually done uh, a lot of training on tech writing for engineers. I ran a whole series of courses for a company up in Minneapolis early last year. So I think I ran something like 90 people in the, one of their IT groups through a course on how to write coherently. And it was interesting because for a lot of people, a lot of these people hated English. A lot of these people hated writing. Uh, at one point, um, when I was, I was describing the basic rules of grammar and punctuation, and one guy who was sitting right about here, I'm sorry to keep picking on you, you're just, you're just close, sort of muttered, what a load of crap. <laughs> and I remember I, um, I turned to him and I said, you know, you're right. It does sound like a load of crap, but if you think about it, you're a programmer and programmers have pro, uh, you know, programming languages have syntax rules that you follow without question but you were traumatized in eighth grade by having to go up to the board and diagram a sentence, and you've hated punctuation ever since. And the guy said, yeah. And the room sort of lightened up a lot after that. And from then on, I turned that into my model. And what I found was that you have to find a hook to grab these people. Um, And you're right. A lot of these people do write business requirements. Um, In this company... One of the things we did was we had labs where you could all bring, or it's like get six people, bring in the document of your choice, and the instructor will analyze it with you and show you your mistakes and suggest what might be cleaned up. You guys ever use the readability statistics in Word? Okay, and you know if you run this, anybody never seen this feature? Okay, if you um, if you go to the uh, grammar and spelling tools, grammar and spelling. And you do have the option of turning on the grammar checking, and when you do, when you get the results at the end, it gives you the readability level, the passive voice level, and the grade level. The readability level, the higher the better. Technical writing is generally considered to be about between, say, 50 and 70, just because of the nature of the material. And this one guy brought in a business requirements document that when we ran it through the checker, rated zero. (laughs) And I was so charmed by this if that's the word I'm looking for. I mean, I'd never seen a document that rated zero on the readability scale. And I said to him, would you want to read this? And he said, hell no, I don't understand what it says. So we sat down, and I said, look, look at this first sentence. And you see how it's written? This is in a style, it's called passive voice. And if we just flip a few words around, nothing major, it's now in a format called active let's run it through the readability statistics again, see what we get. And we ran it, and it jumped to something like 0.8. And I said to the guy, okay, look, you just made an infinite improvement in the usability, in the readability. Why don't you keep doing what I've been doing, what I showed you, and, you know, if you need any help, give me a yell. And for the rest of the morning, about every five minutes or so, I would hear this roar of triumph. <laughs> yes, 1.2. All right. <laughs> and I look at this guy as one of my all-time success stories because he'll never be a, a tech writer, but he'll be a better writer. And that's what we need.
2: There's one fundamental flaw, and that's Microsoft's grammar checkers between a 15 and 60% oh, right.
1: success rate. Well, that's true. I'll give you that. Um, but you, you know what the Grammar Checker gives us, even if it's not entirely accurate? It gives us a consistent baseline. And that's what I want. It may not be accurate, but it's a baseline from which I can start. And I'll, accept, I'll settle for that. Because if we do this, uh, what this does is it allows the programmers to start submitting material for us, which means we no longer have to do all the writing. We can become more editors. Uh, accumulators. And what do we need to do to make this work? And you've probably heard people say this before. We need two things, strategic vision, and we need standards. So, you know, this sounds, you're probably thinking, oh, geez, this is going to be one of these theoretical treatments again. But I wrote an article in the January intercom the Bleeding Edge column in February talked about the first part. You know, the output, the flare output that I just talked about. The April column is talking about this stuff. Input. Input management. Um, we need to define things. What outputs do we need now? But what outputs might we need in the future? In other words, you need to have a strategic sense of where the company's going. I mean, you know. Do you know what your outputs are today? probably do you know what your outputs are going to be a year from now you know do you know the company's strategic direction okay I see one one head nodding one outright laughing in the back of the room um, actually several I'm sorry yeah.
0: knowing it would assume
1: they have one. well that's true knowing it would assume they have one um, but you know something I've always said that, if you're working in a vacuum, it's either good or bad. It's bad because there's no direction, but it's good because it's a vacuum and we can help steer things. So the vacuum might be we help direct the company's strategic direction because tech writing, user manuals, you know, all that stuff, boring stuff that nobody pays any attention to. It, comment. That's what I like in tech writing. I'm sorry. <laughs>
4: That's what I like in
1: well, that's fine but the problem is if it's the boring stuff it's going to get outsourced to Bangalore and there are complaints that India is already too expensive and oh yeah the people are looking in Romania Poland, Poland Philippines um, it's so work
4: here from India because the uh-huh. people here get it back. Yep. And they
1: look at it, and they're like, oh, crap, nobody's going to be able to read this. Right. And
4: then I get paid to fix whatever <laughs> Oh, yeah, oh, I, b- I believe it. So, I just saw myself as a translator from, uh, if you've out for Sandy, I, I Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a whole new
1: field. <laughs> well, it is. But, you know, on the other hand, there are companies who just don't care. I mean, I, five years ago, five, five years ago, I got a call from a company in, um, I think they were in Zurich, Switzerland. And they were coming out with some sort of product that was based on Excel, some sort of business a business analysis tool. And they needed a help system. They'd found my name through the STC, I think. Could I do it? And I said, sure. And I thought about it. And I said, not only can I do it, but I'll even give you a discount without even asking, partly because I thought it would be neat to have a client in Zurich, Switzerland. And partly because I was planning on taking my wife on vaca- sort of a working vacation to Switzerland and Germany. And this way I could stop into Zurich, say, hi, how are you doing? And write off that portion of the trip. And we got to the point where I would wrote the proposal. It was ready to be signed. And somehow, some guy in Moscow heard about the fact that this guy needed a help system, came back with a competing proposal, and he was going to do it at $10 an hour. And... You know, so the guy in Zurich said, can you compete with this? And I said, no. And then I said, "Um, does the guy in Moscow speak English? No. Well, how do you expect that people are going to be able to use your help system? And he said, and I almost word for word, well, I'll worry about that later, but at least this way I can tell people we have online help. (laughs) And, you know, how do you compete with something like that other than just throwing up your hands and saying, best of luck to you? So this whole issue is very much up in the air. Outsourcing, insourcing, or sort of reverse outsourcing, if you will. Um, How the material might be used. In other words, what's the size of a chunk that you need to create? Uh, Is a chunk a topic? Is a chunk an entire dialogue box description? Is it a field description? It's very tough to do because if you're not careful you can wind up with thousands and thousands of chunks of information and the biggest problem is finding them, extracting them and putting them together into the finished output. Difficult to do. Um, What are we producing? And I mentioned this earlier. Are we producing finished products or are we producing chunks that are going to be used as raw material? They're simply going to serve as raw material so that they can be extracted and used today in a help system Tomorrow they can be extracted and used in a different help system on a web-enabled cell phone, etc. Because you're going to approach this very differently. All right, the intent scenarios, which is what I'm talking about there, the kind of rigor that you're going to demand in your writing depends on your intent for the material. If you are producing a finished product, and the example I use is a YouTube video, or but think about Word. Uh, Do you guys... Uh, Have any of you ever looked at the HTML that Word produces? Yes. Okay, anybody want to make gagging noises? Okay, I would argue that it doesn't matter. Because if you're creating a document in Word whose sole purpose is to be printed or PDF'd, then I don't care what the code looks like. It may be ugly, but it works. In other words, the document that I'm producing is a dead end. It will be used for whatever its design purpose is, and it stops, so I don't care what it looks like. Um, on the other hand if it's raw material this thing had better be as clean as standards consistent as possible in order to allow cost effective automated conversion yeah, Comment? It in,
2: in it really
1: well oh yeah really oh yeah absolutely this stuff does get really squirrely which means that one of the things you're going to want to do is look at the tools you use and possibly include cleanup tools, code cleanup tools, in your toolkit. All right, um, hold that thought for a second because that's on a slide about three further. All right, the standards that I'm talking about for structure, the simplest structural standard is a template, period. You'd be surprised how often people do not use them. How, do any of you have Word templates? Okay, you have them. Do you, do you give them to your subject matter experts, if you have any? Do they use them? Okay. Yeah, they use them mm. to make hand for the economy. Yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, you know, you try to create templates. I have a fairly standard approach for creating templates, which I find works fairly well. But I still assume that with the, no matter how good my intentions were, um, Tom, I'll pick on you just to give Bruce a break. Um, you, as my non-techie subject matter expert, will find any way there is of messing it up. And that's fine. But it's better, it's cleaner, than it would have been if you just wrote the document from scratch. So it's not perfect, but it's fixing some of the problem. One
2: well, of the comments is Microsoft totally the, the uh,
1: yeah. styles with the
2: last, not the two thousand
1: seven mm-hmm. Yeah, well that that's true. Uh, that's true. They change. they yeah, they certainly changed things around. But you know, I would argue that you work with what you've got. You no, know,
2: they did more
1: They added a lot of yeah. Uh, enhancements. yeah. Oh yeah, but we still have to deal with what we've got.
2: Local styles on your drop-down mm-hmm. There are ways to turn all that crap off.
1: Yep. Yeah. But that that's the thing, you deal with what you've got. Coding does anybody hear hand code? Okay. Stop. Alright. Um, if you like me came from the era when hand coding was macho or macha mm-hmm. in your cases. Yeah. Um, well you,
2: I'll bet you used to build your or your uh, wind help with the footnotes. So oh absolutely. The dollar and the uh, yeah. pound sign mm-hmm. and lowercase K and
1: Yeah That was the only way to do it. That was the man's way to do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. that was also that was also the way, as I think I mentioned last year, that I generated 453 errors in one file. Because it turned out that I after I got my heart restarted and looked at the list, it turned out that I had mistyped one code, copied it and pasted it 450 times. And, you know, it was about that time that I started thinking that, yeah, these sort of these, you know, gooey authoring tools may be kind of wimpy. But you know, this way I'm not going to deal with 453 stupid coding mistakes. I may still turn out a help system that looks like a pair of Bermuda shorts, but at least the code will be clean. You know, it may be really ugly, but the code will be clean, and that's a huge start. Um, You want to get GUI tools that follow open standards. Get away from tools that have proprietary standards, in-house standards, Um, CSS, crucial, XML compliance crucial data compliance is going to become crucial don't hand code it's too whimsical you know i'm going to do something that completely breaks standard to show you what a cool developer i am which is great until you try to process the document and the processor can't figure out what i did the syntax is terrible you have typos all over the place and it's just too slow Writing. Uh, Use consistent vocabularies, which is really tough. Is it a Coke, a tonic, a pop, a soda, whatever? Uh, My client down in St. Pete, the guy who refuses to go north of Tampa, actually, this is a company, it's a company that makes swimming pool heaters. That's probably all I can tell you. But I put a 6,000. I built a 6,000-topic help system for them. It's their technical reference guide. Fortunately, I just built the structure. They did all the writing. But um, they actually started trying to generate their own controlled vocabulary. So anytime you go to a topic that's talking about, say, a heater element, it says you may have gotten here by looking for the terms uh, heater element widget thingy gadget or something else but the official term that you should look for is heater element they're trying to create their own controlled vocabulary um, indexing do an index use a house style and stick to it do, uh, anybody here a professional indexer does anybody here how many of you have never indexed a document in your careers okay you will sooner or later it's it's a lot of fun um, does anybody like indexing No, 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 that doesn't count. You have to, you have to do it and like it. Um, it's, a lot of people make jokes about indexing because it's so tedious and you generally do it at the end of the project when you're sick and tired of it. But the index is crucial and if you talk to professionals, they'll tell you there's a, there are specific ways of doing an index correctly. I would argue it doesn't matter. Just pick one way and do it consistently and that's more important. Yeah, it's true of anything. Uh, tools. Use the authoring tools right. Use them effectively. It's not the same thing. Use them efficiently. It's not the same thing. Get trained. Um, Use mainstream tools mainstreamly. A mainstream tool would be Dreamweaver, would be Flare, would be Robohelp, would be... What's another tool that you guys use? Front page. page. Um, Okay, it's a a tool. Um, Word, yeah, use it correctly. Don't do cool things at the code level. Don't say something like, gee, I wonder if I can do this. Um, you know the joke about the, the most common last words of 18-year-old guys is, hey, look at this, or maybe, hey, watch this, before they just blow something up by violating standard. Um, I'm not going to comment in other words use the tools right Um, learn about the basic technologies to understand what's going on Um, I cannot tell you how many places I've run into lately that don't understand the difference between RTF and HTML and they're still developing WinHelp because they thought that well it's help isn't that the same as HTML no, two completely different formats. Oh, well, what is the difference? You have to understand at least what is a style sheet. A lot of people still don't know, and they just don't create them because they don't know what they are or why they should use them. Streamline your tool suite. This, um, I have to ask, how many, how many people here are FrameMaker users? Really? One person? Boy, this is, I'm sorry? This is okay. This is unusual, uh, ma'am. Do you have a gun on you? <laughs>
2: I think FrameMaker's
1: dead. Uh, I would. Okay. I have.
2: And
1: I don't <laughs> yeah, it's actually in Orlando, just south of the airport. Um, I've been in places where I have su- suggested getting rid of FrameMaker, and in some some cases, it's, it's it's never quite caused a fist fight. but it's come close. My argument has always been that. Um the only people who use FrameMaker are professional tech writers in high tech. You go outside high tech, no one's ever heard of it. Nobody uses it. Um, it's some sort of weird it's sort of like Word, isn't it, but scarier, more expensive. It's like, on steroids. it's like Interleaf on steroids, but they're really out of date steroids. And I've been in places where, you know, you're using FrameMaker, they're using Dreamweaver. Somebody over here is using front page. And then this group, this is the real gearhead section. They're using Notepad. (laughs) They're hand-hacking code in Notepad. And get one tool. Be consistent. Because this way you don't have to worry about conversions between different tools. Makes it a lot more manageable. So let me sum sum this up. How applicable is Web 2.0 in general? And the answer is, for most companies today, not a, minimally, frankly. But it's not that long ago that HTML was irrelevant. It's not that long ago that online help was irrelevant. Um, if any, anybody ever been to Comdex in Vegas? Comdex, um, before, before it disappeared, Comdex was a circus. In the late 80s, I was a partner in a software company. And with my own two hands, I created the second and third hypertext system ever released commercially. They were for MS-DOS 2.1 and Lotus 123 2.01. Okay. If some of you aren't familiar with this, this is back when computers were powered by little hamster cages. <laughs> but we went and we had a booth in Comdex in Bally's Hotel in Vegas. It was me and the president. And we had 500 people drop by over five days. And, you know, and we had this big booth. It says Hypertext is here. And people came by. Oh, wow, Hypertext, cool. We, were, we had reporters from industry papers interviewing us. I was photographed by representatives of a Japanese newspaper standing next to the screen going, you know, one of these things. So there's probably a picture of me somewhere in a landfill outside Tokyo. And at the time, nobody had the slightest idea what this hypertext stuff was for. Nowadays, you don't have online help. You'll, you'll be beaten up in reviews. Um, so, you know, for most companies, it's not really that important today. Hypertext wasn't that important 15 years ago. HTML wasn't that important 7 or 8 years ago. But, you know, the way we're doing it today is working. But there are things that seem to be screwing up, going wrong. Our HTML help files don't seem to behave off the network drive anymore. They don't seem to work. This uh, RoboHelp, our mainstay tool, is either dead or alive, or somewhere in between. Um, this I actually like because somebody asked me at one point w- um, whether Flare was XML compatible, and I said XML is... HTML recast as an instance of XML according to the XHTML, DTD, or XSD, and the whole place burst out laughing. <coughs> you know, we hear people talking about this. What are they talking about? And Why does it matter? Is anybody actually using our help? Do you have usage statistics? Do you know if people are using your stuff? That's,
2: that's the valid reason why you want your help to be online. hmm Mm-hmm. Find out where they're going because then you
1: find out about whether there's a training issue or a software issue. Absolutely. And this is all made possible by web-based help. And in order to make this work, the help has to be web-based or increasingly web-based, partly because it's the only way we can track this usage and partly because we're heading towards an era where people just won't use local help, help that only runs on your C drive. All right. So there are some lessons here that I'll just sum up. Uh, the days when, if you does anybody remember the days when you, if you knew how to type, you pretty much had it set for the rest of your career. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. Um, now, I mean, this stuff is changing daily. There's actually a standard coming along called the Cooperative Proglot Standard, which is like an advanced version of an applet but they communicate with each other. So program snippets are proglets, just as application snippets are applets. This is coming. You need to know what this stuff is. If only to judge what its effect will be. Do I need DITA? What is this? Do I need Ajax? What is this? Um, ignorance of change is no longer an excuse. I can't tell you for how many years I used to run into clients and still do who got themselves painted into corners or went down blind alleys because they were ignorant of the technical changes going on around them. Oh, we never heard of this XML stuff. What is this? It's not an excuse anymore. We know that things are changing. Um, A shift to Web 2.0 may seem scary. Um, if If any of you have gone on some of the blogs that have appeared in the last two weeks since the release of RoboHelp 6, Anybody looked at these, look at monkey pie? Uh, okay, there, No. Um, you, there's a real resistance in some quarters toward advancing technology. It's sort of like, I would sum it up as RoboHelp, and again, you know, I'm focusing on RoboHelp because RoboHelp has been such an enormous part of this market for so many years, but you can look at front page or I still have, I know I have people who use um, uh, what was the tool before before uh, FrameMaker? Uh, what am I? PageMaker. Thank you. I have a client. <laughs> okay, the jokes still aren't personal. Um, <laughs> I have this client who loves PageMaker and he's sort of ha- he, he's almost at the stage of having a belt buckle that says they'll take PageMaker away from me when they pry it out of my cold dead hands. <laughs> and I keep telling him he's using a tool that sort of goes back to the Jurassic era. It works on his
2: 286.
1: But it works on his 286. Um, yeah. This stuff is coming and if we adapt to it, you know, that's where the growth is. I cannot tell you how many people I knew who were experts in Windows Help in 1992 who have disappeared because they refused to move to HTML. How many people who were experts in uh, Doc to help who have disappeared or for help who have disappeared because those tools basically died you have to keep advancing ma'am
4: just an example it just seems to me the computer my dad has
1: is one of my old ones mm-hmm. it's
4: a 286
2: it's
4: running Windows 95 It mm-hmm. has a five and a quarter a three and a half and
1: a CD and is he happy with it
4: yeah because he only uses a program that mm-hmm. Um, Is the reason the five
1: and a quarter drive is on there because that's where the disk? Yeah. Okay. Look, uh, about six years ago, I broke a tooth. Trust me, this is going someplace. So I went to an oral surgeon who pumped me full of Novocaine, hung about ten pounds of iron out of my mouth, and said, "So what do you do for a living?" Mm -hmm. And I said something. And about six months later, he called me. He said, "Um, "Do I remember that you do online documentation?" And I said, that was really impressive. Yeah, why do you ask? Yeah, it, um, well, it turns out that he runs a little software company on the side. And they make uh, mutual fund tracking and analysis software, but there was no, barely any documentation, and he'd heard about this online help stuff and thought maybe he'd better look into it. And so I said, and this is probably around 90, about 2000, 99, 2000. And I said, sure could I give him, take a look, give him a quote and I said sure what computer does it run on and he said the Apple IIc oh. <laughs> okay some of you have this sort of what look um, Apple IIc was hot around, what around 83 six. 6 let's say early 80s in 86.
2: yeah
1: <laughs> alright um, things are changing and the latest thing that's coming along is Web 2.0. The, some of the principles, of f- much of what we do, we will do, we'll still be doing when some of you retire. Ma'am, you and Tom appear to be some of the youngest people in the room here. Um, so I'm going to pick on you. Some of what's going on will still be going on when you guys retire. But that won't be with the leading edges anymore. That will be the trailing edge. This will be the stuff that's being outsourced to Moscow or Romania. Except in your... Well, we may be living over there. But you know, the, if you want to stay on the edge, because that's where the jobs are, it's the principles of this kind of thing, the principles that are leading people to use Google for help, to use author-created or contributor-created content in our help systems, to create structured controlled, syntactically correct material that can be reused in unplanned ways. That's really where the future is for us. This will take us into content management systems, into structured documentation, into automated output, and I'm talking to a company right now that's interested in creating a fully automated help system generator that will do pretty much what I talked about in the automated output Except in addition to creating online help, they want to create online movies. Angel yeah. Help. yeah. So let me ask: Does anybody have any questions at this point? Yeah.
2: How soon are yeah. we going to
1: have angel help as the Um. I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear that right. What do you mean by angel help?
2: Angel, oh, do you remember seeing that movie Michael reality? Oh. So said angel,
1: and they'd call up oh. Um. Yeah. Okay, um, okay. Angel help. Um, does anybody remember uh, Max Headroom? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Every, you ever gone to the BBC website and seen Anna Nova? The, uh, the virtual newscaster? Yep. Okay. We have um, virtual reality personas now. And these things are driven off databases. We have voice recognition. We That's have... The well, that's that's true. Well, that's you know that's true. But I have. Um, does anybody like Clippy? You know the little pa- paper clip help system. Okay. Um, okay. I'll be the I'll be the contrarian. I'll be the contrarian. Um, I use the dog. Partly because my theory is Microsoft modeled him after my dog. It's just sort of you know amorphous blob of brown fur. But what I've also found is that the less techy you are, the more you like Clippy or one of his incarnations. And I've had people say to me, well, he humanizes the interface. And I've said, how do you know it's a he? And they just sort of assume that it's better than this cold, sterile computer. And theoretically, I could have pictures of you. You know, facial shots of you and make you my help avatar. So when I call for help, a little window pops up in the upper right corner and it's Mark talking to me. Talking me through the the process. There's no reason why we can't do this now. We have the technologies. Well, I
4: just talked to somebody today who said that um, they were saying something about going online and mm-hmm. in this interface with this, it's a female. You can make her use whatever voice you want, say whatever you yeah. want to say. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, I she had a dirty mouth. And
1: um <laughs> I was yeah.
4: like well that sounds kind of cool but it, it's getting to the point where um, there was a thing I was the other night where this woman was being created mm-hmm. you know with all these measurements yeah. so that she could be an interface in this whole system it could mm-hmm. be whatever she chose to make something new yeah anyway. so. there,
1: are, there are products out there that, uh, virtual human development kits that will do exactly that Ma'am, I'm sorry, I cut you off. that's a
3: cutoff? Uh, You know, we've got the onions here that have to be on the leading edge, but I have 37 months to go before I retire. I have 918 (laughs) (laughs) days.
4: I'm a lone tech writer
3: in Mm -hmm. my group, and we're using Mm -hmm. WinHelp. Are you really? Yes, yes. And our clients are internal,
4: and they're just happy with
1: that. Well, then you know something? If you can hang in there for 37 more months, <laughs> go,
4: for
1: at, so go for it. At some point, then you can hand it off to yes. this lady and let her pick it, pick it up. But
2: I, I don't have thing.
3: any plans to update my resume or my. You know, I don't, I don't nope. have a player and I listen to uh, Adobe's site today to their new uh, mm-hmm. help six yep. you know, uh, webinar, and I'm going. I don't even think I have to update for that. If, if the new one's going to run on Vista. Yep.
1: <laughs> I actually have a, a, f- a friend of mine asked me at a, an STC meeting up in Boston about a month ago. Um, she said, and I almost word for word, I don't want to do any of this. <laughs> I'm a writer. I don't want to do uh, R- uh, hard dollar ROI cost justification. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do CMS. I don't want to do XML. I just want to write. Well,
2: the problem yeah. is the value of the commodity
1: writing has gone down. It's gone down. It's, Okay. As
2: to job
1: position. okay. Okay. And the, did they get? Did they? Did anybody respond? I'm sure somebody. Probably did. Probably did. I'm sure they did. Okay. So all it means is if you can hang in there for 37 months, at the risk of have, being laid off and replaced. No,
3: just want job.
1: Who do you work for? Really? Boy, that's interesting.
3: No, but see what I. Yeah, but, uh, that's just a small part of my job. I do a lot of uh, other stuff.
1: Okay, then theoretically they can't get rid of you for 37 months because you do too many other things. Hang in there.
4: Diversification.
1: Other questions? Is there a sort of
5: wiki help?
1: Is there a wiki help? Yeah, Um, you create a help community and let your
5: users write the help. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you talk about personalizing and and taking input from everybody else as part of the program you create. All right, here's our help
0: Community
5: mm-hmm. that you can participate in, mm-hmm. and it seemed like you yep. could maybe monitor it and answer the questions, but let the let the user yeah. create the. That's what Microsoft does.
1: And Microsoft yeah.
3: Actually, has an error message with a link in it,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: you can click the link and you go to a site where possible answers to your issue right. are listed. And if not, you're welcome to add it. And
1: you, so know what, worldwide yeah, you know what? Yeah, absolutely. You know what you know what worries me. Um, yeah, Shar Shar James Tanny. Was it Shar? Okay. Yeah. The only thing, what would make me nervous about about doing that kind of thing would be, you know what group dynamics are? Let me rephrase that. You know how group dynamics can be. Have you ever gone, how many of you have spent time on forums, on listservs? Where somebody asks a question, and you get two or three competing answers, and within about ten minutes, it's been reduced to, "Well, your mother wears army boots." Well, yeah, <laughs> and flame wars. And the problem is, you know, let's say that um, let's say that Bill yells louder than I do. I've got the right answer, but Bill's louder than I am. He wins, and or pure mischief. And you, you know, you're the outside user. You go to the help. You got the wrong answer right. and something crashes or your building catches fire. Who do you sue? So I don't think
3: companies take to very hmm? readily.
1: At least not not until there's a legal precedent okay. for a lawsuit about bad information on a wiki because if there isn't, as far as I'm concerned, you're playing with fire there because I'm you don't the know what... Hmm? I don't
2: agree
1: Fair yeah. enough. I'll
2: tell you why. Hmm? You go out there on the wiki or whatever and you've, hmm? you've got a dynamic... Yep. where people are eventually, the law of average is going to catch up, and you get enough samples, you're going to get the right one. In your <coughs> scenario where there's three, right. I, I've got the opportunity to investigate three possibilities and discern the right one for myself. Yep. Now yep. let's go into a single source, sterile environment where the information mm-hmm. is only as good as that single technical communicator who put that out there, or that single engineer yep. who put it out there that may or may not be correct, and there's no opportunity to discover the correct answer
1: perfectly true.
2: I
3: mean, if a company, if I'm writing something, a developer has, has put into it, it, a business analyst, analyst has put into it, it, someone has reviewed it, there is some legitimacy. But if somebody said, well, try this,
2: mm-hmm. who well, no. knows?
1: Yeah. Really it's, tr- well, yeah, it's the trustworthiness. You have that
2: cross check, but there are a lot of
3: documentation
2: samples out there, particularly commodity documents, mm-hmm. like coming back that turner, coming from People who are DSL, uh-huh. people who are uh, the developers that are in one country, they, they, oh, I see. Uh, yep. the project managers oh. are the guy in oh, go. You know,
1: go ahead, just jump, jump in. in. The open source has been doing this for a long time. No, no, I don't, I don't the open source know. community is being yep. with a profit maker. Yep. mm oh, um, has been doing it for yep. a long time. They have moderators, or in their case, I think the best one I've
5: ever heard of, was like, um, community murders. Uh, basically <laughs> guided it.
4: Somebody who yep. moderated those forums
5: guided right.
4: it, um, checked check facts mm-hmm. uh, basically let, them let that creative energy flow but made sure that those things that came back and got right. endorsed by
1: mm-hmm.
4: the company had gone through this filter. It happened happening
1: years. So yep, I agree. I agree, but on the other hand, and I can say on the other hand to practically anything, that gatekeeper now becomes a um, funnel, the stopper, a Fil- no, not a filter, but a stopper, because if you're the only gatekeeper um, and everything has to go through you, you're going to slow things down. And how do you organize
4: all that information? You have 200 mm-hmm. people responding to something. Like right. there's a mm-hmm. about.com. Mm-hmm. I hate about.com. Mm-hmm. My God, there's too stinking much for the one thing that
3: I want to look at. It
2: yep. like it
4: takes you all over the place. Mm-hmm. I won't go there. Right. So if you did help like that, and you get there, and they're like, "Oh crap, I can't," I got two right. hundred responses mm-hmm. to
1: read. Right. You? It's to What you want is one answer. Yeah. Just right. give me the focused answer to my question, and without a moderator or an aggregator, um. I didn't say that
3: they have plus
4: everything.
1: Okay, so they're... The community mm-hmm. is open. Right. What
4: the company says we endorse is
1: that. But then that's the problem, because if I'm the, if I'm, I'm the gateway, if I'm the sta- seal of approval for the company, then I can ride herd over everybody else no, in the no, open... all out
2: there. It's just some of them have the little flag next to it. Yeah,
1: but aren't you going to go... For the one with the flag, because that implies trustworthiness of information. More well, likely I am. Do you ever go yeah. past the first
4: page of Google?
1: hmm mm-hmm. I know.
4: How about having one answer in the comment section. You could do that.
1: You know, you know what will happen. Everybody will read the one answer, solves the problem, and they stop. Well,
5: there's the, the the, the adult yep. forum where you can click the answer mm-hmm. that's
1: true. Yep. All right, let's do this. This, this. this 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 topic seems to be one that calls for beer. Um, does anybody have any? Okay, in that case, let me do this. Um, since it's warm, uh, you've all been very good, but it's getting late. Does anybody have any other questions? Yep. All right, any other questions about anything besides this topic, which is actually a great topic? Are you coming over to Orlando? Yeah, I'll be going back tomorrow morning and then, oh, you mean to, to the Orlando group? Oh yeah. I'll ask you this. Talk to me afterwards.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Any other questions about any other technical or methodological topics that I've approached here?
4: Just Yes. On one
1: thing. Yeah.
4: In the beginning, the question came up about copyright protection of information.
1: Yeah. Ah yes. I never answered that. So let me give you a quick answer now. I don't know. Um, well that's the, the honest answer the slightly longer answer is that this seems to be evolving because what was happening was as long as nobody was making money off your content think of YouTube for example you, know, you want to post a video of your, your dog playing the piano it's cute your cat on a skateboard, it's cute fine but YouTube is busily out there now Google is busily out there trying to figure out how do how do we make money from this? Mm-hmm. How do we market to the audience to the YouTube audience? How do we market to the MySpace audience? And what they're doing is marketing to an audience based on that content, which means all of a sudden that content is going to start getting valuable. And if you get a million hits on your dog playing the piano, and YouTube is making money by selling ads. A t- I could, have had, yeah, I could have had money. I've always been amazed at how many people contribute to industry blogs for free. Uh, if any of you belong to the Yahoo hat group, uh, H-A-T-T, Help Authoring Tools and Technology, there are people on that listserv who seem to live there. And I'm just always impressed at how much time people will devote for free to a service that's incredibly valuable. Because it's content. It's information that you need desperately. And I'm giving it to you for free. How long am I going to be willing to do that? I might do that out of the goodness of my heart. I might do it because I get the benefit of being seen as an industry guru by the subscribers to that group. But as soon as that, the Yahoo group starts making money off my posts, I would think that would bring me to a screaming halt. Because all of a sudden, I'm now thinking... Well, gee, they think my time is worth money, but they're not paying me for it. And I I expect, and a lot of people are predicting that a lot of these Web 2.0 sites that are based on user-provided content are going to be in for something of an upheaval when they start start charging. They won't.
2: This is mm-hmm. if anything we learned from the first dot-com bubble mm-hmm. first is you cannot start up
1: Well, that's true, but then again, there will be competitors to YouTube who may say, you know, Mark, I'm going to give you a buck for every thousand hits to that video of your cat turning the porch light off or something like that, and you now have the option. Do I send that video to YouTube or Neil tube? If I'm going to pay you, you'll send it to me. Ma'am?
4: Uh, evaluate the uh, Flair versus
1: RoboHelp 6. Talk to me afterwards. <laughs> is, that, is anybody else interested in that? No. <laughs> Talk to me afterwards. I
5: mean, it occurs to me if you're going to have online help for mm-hmm. a product, it's not going to be available to anybody except people using the product. you have to log in somehow. So it's not going to be out there for the whole world. So copyright might not be as much of an issue. Mm-hmm and your users could still take it and do something else with it but it's not the whole yeah. world getting in there I mean,
1: well no that's true but I mean if I'm, a, uh, if, if I'm using Dreamweaver and you're, you're one of the contributors to the content of the help system which means that Adobe now doesn't have to pay somebody to write the help system because they're getting your services for free are you at some point going to decide enough is enough I want some money
5: well, it might. But again,
1: Microsoft has been doing this for
5: a long time. Well, that's really
1: true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Karen, and that? some of some of that they get away with because of the association. You know, I'm a Microsoft MVP. Cool. Mm-hmm. So it's the the prestige of being a Microsoft MVP.
5: Look the contributors, Amazon.com, and all the reviewers. People write the viewers. Reviews are yeah. free. They must have millions of them. Oh,
1: they there. do. Most and, of the authors are the Their sisters. Yeah. And that's, it's the prestige. It's the pre- Much of it is the prestige. Neil,
2: interesting yeah. though, if you're talking about copyright as a technical mm-hmm. document and a technical mm-hmm. instruction, yeah. I am only going to attribute this. We had a uh, Orlando check on a copyright attorney a and a half ago. Mm-hmm. This extensive discussion, her point was as a mm-hmm. copyright attorney, that mm-hmm. Technical documentation instructions is not copyrightable material in the first place. The putting together of technical instructions to use something mm-hmm. is not, under the copyright law, a copyrightable entity yes. itself. It yes. well.
1: Boy, that's interesting. But then why do companies copyright their documentation?
2: Uh, they do it proactively, uh, prophylactically, <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, you know, we as a matter of course in our template the copyright and the company name on anything.
1: Well, of course, part of that you could say is that its copyright is almost irrelevant. Because you know, if you document a procedure for uh, Dreamweaver, is there any chance that I, as the guy doing the documentation for front page, am ever going to want to steal your stuff? No, because it's totally irrelevant. You know, It's two completely different products.
2: Although I might take the structure.
1: But the stru- structure, okay, but you can't copyright a structure. No, you can't. But you can copyright the information well I, I would say th- I don't know I don't
2: know it was, it was yeah. an interesting topic and it, it it did spawn some robust discussion but and, yeah. and again this is the opinion of one attorney mm-hmm. and um, you can copyright the software actually.
1: yeah <laughs> I don't know I mean my other experience is that you know you can get one attorney who says one thing uh, yeah. but you'll get another attorney who says fine we'll sue sure
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a matter of
1: yeah, money talks. Or who's who's willing to take a chance on a uh, take a chance on a suit? Sure, I'll sue hey, you. Sure, everybody knew it. They they were known as cancer sticks in the 40s. People smoked anyway. You know, nobody in their right mind would file a cigarette liability lawsuit because everybody knew the risk. Look what happened. I don't know. And that's what worries me. It's the uncertainty. The fact that if I were a company doing my documentation, and the answer is, what are my legal risks? If I I have to say, I don't know, that's going to make me a lot more nervous than if I could say, it's this or this, if it's clear cut. If I don't know, that, that worries me. So, okay, let me send you all home. That's true, that's true, and I won't charge you for it either. Okay, thank you very much for having me go home. It's been a pleasure seeing you guys.